Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Back to open the voice gate, rewind and rewatch, episode 49, covering Open the Ultimate Gate 2014 from the McAllister Auditorium on the campus of Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana on April 4th, 2014. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our redcircle.com landing page. Just click the red box that says sponsor this podcast, and you can set up a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but we would like to thank all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts, Daryl Powell and Mike Spears. Join alongside, as always, my co-host and friend Case Lowe. In case we are approaching the end of the road, we are now in the famed McAllister Auditorium. This is the the penultimate Dragon Gate USA show, and it feels like a culmination of a lot of things. I have to say, watching the show back, how, what were your thoughts and takeaways, and how are you feeling about this series now reaching its conclusion? The show is dark. This is a funeral equivalent of a wrestling show, and watching these shows back because I watched these shows live. I watched this entire weekend of WWN branded property. I watched it all live as it happened, and I haven't revisited any of it since. Now, we'll talk more next week about the Evolve show that happened uh, on this weekend as well, and the Wrestling Odyssey show, the precursor to the WWN Super Show. We'll talk about that more next week. But watching this show back, all I could think of was Pine Bluff, Missouri, that final ECW fan cam that feels like death. That's like you're invited to a funeral and the unfortunate familiar vibe that opened the ultimate gate 2014, despite some highs, which I, I don't know if Mike will be as high on some of the stuff as I will be, but I thought there were some real highs on this show and it was like laughing at a funeral. It was just a disgusting feeling watching this entire two and a half hour event. It It's something that, 
it felt like a wake. It really did. And it felt like that you're looking at the dead body of DGUSA. And the thing that's like remarkable is this isn't the last show. We still have Mercury rising after this. So I'm wondering how more pronounced it's going to feel like next week. But boy, talk about going out with a whimper. Like that was like, even at the time I was like, this is very depressing to watch. And then rewatching it back seven years later almost. And it's even more depressing, you know, watching it this time. Well, this is this is something that I guess I should probably say for two weeks from now when we kind of wrap everything up, but I'll mention it now that the legacy of Drangit USA did not have to be what it turned into. There is such a distinct and sharp tonal change from everything after the fourth anniversary show. Now, now we'll talk when we kind of wrap things up about all of the definitive eras of the, of the promotion, Obviously, things start going downhill pretty fast, but just marking where all of the definitive, oh, this is going downhill points are, is something we'll do. But after the fourth anniversary show, you know, if that's the final show and we go out with Gargano versus Tozawa in the main event after the three AR Fox versus Tremperetta matches, which is still one of the weirdest things I've ever seen on a show, if that's the final show, I think this entire promotion is remembered differently, and I think they're remembered in a much more positive light. But for as fun as I thought Fearless and Freedom Fight 2013 were those final two shows of 2013, the first having the Bucks versus the Bravados in the main event, the second having Gargano versus Hero, it just... it the atmosphere sucks. There's no other way to describe it. It's just awful. And then you begin with the two shows... And the New York area at the beginning of the year, Revolt, which I think both Mike and I thought were uh, was a very bad show. And then Way of the Ronin, which at the very least had Hero versus Fox, Gargano versus Strong, and that very dumb, very fun Jigsaw versus Fire Ant match, which after watching a Drangit USA show every week for the past year, the stupidity of that match has really resonated with me as like, oh, that's something fun. I'm glad, I'm glad we made it through this so we could remember a match like that. And then to come to New Orleans to be wrestling in a ring with a blue canvas. You don't even end your final Drangit USA shows with the signature red ring. Now, maybe that was uh, purposeful as there was no Drangate talent on the show. I don't know. We'll certainly talk about that in just a second, about all of the catastrophes that took place and how we ended up with a Drangate USA show with no Drangate wrestlers on it. But... Oh my god, what a crawl to the finish line. What a bummer these final few shows have been. Yeah, and it's something like, and and I don't mean this to be distasteful, and I apologize if this comes off that way. It's like watching a loved one slowly wither away. You know? It, it, it's something that, through the time, I just got so disgusted that there were a lot of shows I just skipped out on, and it just was like I couldn't bear to watch, but seeing how things were from that fourth anniversary show to the conclusion is just slowly but surely just completely losing what everything was to the fact that it's just a name with some people that were around during the heyday they did make some things feel like big moments here but it's just like why it, it, it it's a slow crawl it's not like it's not like how some indies have like huge events and then they close like how when chikara had their first shutdown this is a funeral march. This is progressively watching someone wither away. So with that in mind, 
let us get in to the timeline with everything that led up to Open the Ultimate Gate 2014. Like I said, next week, we will talk about Evolve 28 and the Wrestling Odyssey show. We'll talk about Ring of Honor. We'll talk about maybe maybe some New Japan, because I actually think it kind of pertains to this Dragon Gate USA show. Um, and whatever other indie festivities were going on this weekend, including the WrestleCon Super Show. But we are going to briefly talk about WrestleCon as it pertains to the WWN universe. And I will now reference a David Bixen span David Bixen span piece from his Substack, Babyface versus Heel. And what he writes as everything evolves, but WWN isn't exactly out of the woods, where Bix says, Back in 2013, the modern WrestleMania weekend as we now know it really got going with the first annual WrestleCon, the Meadowlands Expo Center in Secaucus, New Jersey. That year, for the first and only time, High Spot's now annual fan convention was accompanied by wrestling shows from WWN and other friendly promotions. The weekend was an overwhelming success. I vividly remember the on-site ATM at the Expo Center running out of cash, and then it never happened again. Two months later, when announcing the 2014 event in New Orleans, High Spot stated in a press release that, in part due to the space we selected to host the convention, live events from WWN will no longer be under the same roof as WrestleCon's convention. At this time, WWN is not ready to make any announcements regarding their plans in New Orleans, but we do value their continued partnership. When they are ready to announce their intentions, we'll let you know how their shows relate to WrestleCon 2014. Bix goes on to say that oddly worded communication was pretty much the last public word on the matter. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter didn't touch it until the July 8th issue, where Dave Meltzer wrote that due to the cost of the building WrestleCon booked, the WWN crew pulled out of involvement, basically echoing the press release. It's exceedingly difficult to get anyone to talk about what happened, but if you dig around in public records, you start to get a better idea of what might have happened that week as in Secaucus. Specifically, there have been two liens from the New Jersey Division of Taxation on World Wrestling Network, Inc. for a total of $14,901.72 in unpaid taxes since March 13th, 2014. That's just three weeks short of the anniversary of WrestleMania week in 2013. The individual liens, which the court clerk confirmed by phone are still active and unpaid, are listed as $10,450.86 against World Wrestling Network, Inc., and $4,450.86 against WWN owner Sal Hamawai. In the six years plus since WrestleMania 29 weekend, none of the WWN promotions have returned to New Jersey, even though they had previously run five Dragon USA shows in the state, as well as nine Evolve shows there, including seven of the first eight. They've run bordering states plenty, but have yet to return to New Jersey, even for this year's WrestleMania weekend back in the New York City area. This time, they used their regular main venue, LaBoom, in Woodside, Queens. And then Bix writes, finally, It's also worth noting that the version of WWN cited in the New Jersey Leans no longer exists. According to Florida Division of Corporations records, it was dissolved voluntarily on April 29th, 2016. So Mike, off the bat... We have the split between high spots and the WWN universe. I I would say, unless you were really paying attention in 2013, you probably didn't recognize that these guys worked together at some point. What do you make of all this? So I distinctly remember that Russell Kahn, because they had this relationship back in Miami as well. Like high spots and WWN were paired together for the most part for a couple of years. Uh, That whole Secaucus, New Jersey WrestleMania weekend was a basically an abject disaster 
if my memory serves right, because you had those tax liens, you had the fact that WWE was really starting to clamp down on third parties shows and more importantly, third party merch sales because they were thinking that people were counterfeiting and were just basically pawning off WWE merchandise, which of course that that they say that that's the reason that the real reason is they don't want people going to those. They want them to come to their things. And it, it it's something that within with Bix and Span doing this, and it's very interesting, like the way that he was able to get into this, because I would not be surprised if like the whole situation that happened with the, what was going to be the last WWN WrestleMania weekend in Tampa has similar results as well, because that was a, the, all I can say, and this is only therapy words, I believe that this uh, th- that this option to buy out Gabe Sapolsky and buy the libraries was very convenient, considering the fact that they rented this place and it looked like that they were about to take a bath, as many of the other WrestleMania weekend people did last year. So, it, it it's something where this is like the last. This is like the second to the last evolution to what the modern WrestleMania weekend was, was high spots in WWN splitting apart and doing their own thing. And then, of course, then you have GCW coming up from the Joey Janela Spring Break, also from WWN for the first one on Flow Slam and doing their own thing as well. So just was a kind of like a step on the path towards what WrestleMania ended up being in 2019, the last WrestleMania weekend that really existed. Yeah, I think depending on what aspect of the business you're in, you have a drastically different perspective on WrestleMania weekend 2013. Because on one hand, I think if you are uh, the owner of High Spots, and I can't I can't think of his name, Michael something, um, yeah. or Sal, you probably thought, wow, this weekend is such a headache because of the third-party merch crackdown that we talked about when we, re- when we reviewed Open the Ultimate Gate and Mercury Rising 2013. But from a promoter's perspective, and especially from a fan's perspective, I think people realized, oh, there's something here. And you see more shows added in 2014 this year. And again, we'll talk about those more next week. Uh, an influx of shows in 2015 that by 2016, 17, 18, and 19, it's a complete and utter free-for-all, and everybody who was anybody is running that weekend, and I, I think it diluted the weekend. I did not enjoy WrestleMania weekend by the final two or three. I, I was just, it's not, it, to me, it should be the premier showcase of independent talent across the nation, and what it became was just a super weekend. It just, it just, I, I really thought it diluted the quality of every show because you've had, mm-hmm. you know, your, your Pentagon juniors and your Ray Phoenixes and your ACHs that instead of working two shows and having two great matches, they were working eight shows and having eight subpar matches because they were, they had just exhausted themselves and more power to them for making as much money as they were going to make in the entire year. As a consumer though, I did not enjoy it. The one thing I want to ask you before I moved on was, you look at what High Spots did later in the future. They really leaned in hard to the British wrestling scene when it was hot. They brought in their own incredible array of especially Mexican talent through the Rob Viper connection and booked a lot of interesting international names throughout the years on WrestleMania weekend. Do you think Gabe did a good job of, how do I want to phrase this, of kind of countering that with names of his own. I mean, I believe you were there for the weekend where they brought back Sawa and, and brought in Daisuke Sakamoto. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the question is just like, what do you think the alternate universe of 
Gabe-specific WrestleMania weekend shows would have looked like had they continued partnering with High Spots. I think for one, there probably would have been a outside chance that Dragon Gate USA would exist longer because High Spots was our people that take care of visas. If visas are needed, they do things on the up and up. And I I could see that going. It, it's interesting because with the uh, the changes in Gabe Sapolsky's uh, wrestling preferences is something I find very fascinating. And I don't think we'd be seeing uh, Daisuke Sakamoto and Minori Sawa in New Orleans in that case. But I don't know how much longer this relationship would have been tenable to begin with, just considering the WWN side and whatever you want to say about Sal Hamawai, you can say that I'm not going to on air, <laughs> but uh, it's, I, I'll say this. I was in New Orleans for WrestleMania 2018, and Gabe still had fun shows. Uh, Gabe's, the, Gabe's weekends of shows were still a blast, but I, I'll say that the pure variety that High Spots tapped into is the benefit of this relationship being severed because got to see a Rev Pro show, got to see a Crash show, and it was in a completely different venue that actually was a lot better than WWN. Surprise, surprise. And I think that it probably worked out for the best for High Spots to get away from WWN, but I don't know if it was for the best of WWN. I, I guess it maybe was if you are someone who has a positive idea about their WWE affiliation, I guess. I think that's a very fair way of looking at it. I know in, in the latter years, despite some, you know, pancakes and pile drivers bullshit, although I will say the first pancakes and pile driver show was actually very good, and then the, the last two were actively bad. But yeah, High Spots just ended up booking a bunch of stuff that I liked. They had a great Rev Pro show one year. I loved the year they booked the Crash show. Maybe maybe that's our next project is trying to find crash footage because if you go on Cage Match and click on a random crash show from Tijuana in 2016, those cards are those are fever dreams. Those cards are insane, and they never found a distribution deal. Basically, I mean, I know there was a rumor where it was like, oh, they're going to end up on Impact Plus, uh, and that never happened. And it's it's a bummer because they booked some absolutely insane stuff. But this is not the show to get into the crash. This is the Big, show. Oh, go I, ahead. I, I, I was going to say, big fans of Conan's booking, by the way. We are. It's awesome. It's just like, oh, here's this fucking cool match that no one else on Earth would book. Let's do it, and then we'll shoot it on a, on a, on a phone, and we'll shoot it vertically, and then it'll end up on YouTube two days later in, like, two parts, and that is how you will watch this Crash show. As for the news wires, we go to February 28th, where Gabe says that the Evolve and DGUSA title matches are now set for the WWN Live experience in New Orleans. We know you've waited long enough, so here we go. And Gabe announces on April 3rd at Evolve 28th, the Evolve title match between Chris Hero and Trent Beretta. April 4th, Dragon Gate USA opened the Ultimate Gate, the Open the Freedom Gate title match between Johnny Gargano and Ricochet. And the important thing to note here, April 5th, Dragon Gate USA, Mercury Rising 2014, the tradition continues. The annual six-man tag team match will take place. Participants, TBA. <laughs> it's not looking good, Mike. And that is a, a dangerous way to announce your main events and to announce your main events with a TBA in one of the featured matches. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, uh, at this point, there was already rumblings about why it was TBA. And it wasn't like he was hiding things very well. 
No, and and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But Mike, we're we're gonna go to Japan for a second. We're gonna talk about the Dragon Gate Japan happenings, the final time on this show that we'll really do a breakdown of what was going on in Japan. I was talking to someone recently, and I feel like from every show, starting with probably Fearless 2010, that first show in January of 2010. We have, at some point during the course of the shows that that Gabe was running, and sometimes a double shot, sometimes a triple shot, even on those standalone shows, on the rare instance they would happen, we've been able to break down the happenings in Japan as well. They've worked as almost a Drangate Japan timeline podcast as well. This is the final time we will have a chance to do that on this series, and we will start in Osaka, Japan, Champion Gate in Osaka 2014. The night one results of what I would say the matches that matter are a six-man tag with Shima, Ricochet, and T-Hawk defeating Masato Yoshino, Sachihoko Boy, and Uha Nation, and then your two title matches where Genki Horiguchi retained the Brave Gate belt over Yosuke Santa Maria, and Akira Tozawa and Shingo Takagi defended the Twin Gate belts over Cyber Kong and Yamato. And then on the next night in the same building in Osaka, the final two matches, the title matches on Champion Gate, the Jimmies of Kanda, Susumu, and Tanazaki defeated Shima, Kness, and Super Shisa to retain the Twin Gate belts. And your main event, open the Dream Gate title match, Ricochet defeats Masato Yoshino and becomes the first Gaijin open the Dream Gate champion. And this was a huge deal. A like huge second, deal. Like... I, I know that it's a something that I've talked about with Rich Krejci before, but 2014 in kayfabe, Ricochet was the most decorated wrestler in the world because he won this, he won Bola, he didn't he win Best of Super Juniors in 2014 as well? He did. Like, and then he and then as we get into the show, and I I mean he he becomes the final DGUSA champ, open the Frame champion during the lifespan DGUSA. So. I remember like how big of a thing this was that I remember pulling up the Observer website when he won the title, and it's the first time I think they ever have had this where a Dragon Gate photo was a header, and it was Ricochet wins the Open the Dream Gate champion, becomes the first a non-native Open the Dream Gate champion. And, you know, it just was something that was such a cool thing. The match rocks. And the, all the, I remember pretty positively all these title matches from Champion Gate 2014. I mean, uh, Hulk and Akira. I'm, I always call it Hulk and Akira. I mean, I, I mean Akira and Shingo, great tag team. One of the unsung great tag teams in Twin Gate history versus Yama Kong, which is probably Cyber Kong's best tag team partner. And that that rocked. Uh, I remember that uh, the Brave Gate match, that was the first time we got to see kind of like true babyface, plucky babyface, Yosuke San Maria. And then the Triangle Gate match, I mean, it is such a remarkable match to look at in retrospect, knowing now that Susumu is the only person who's still full-time with Dragon Gate after seven years later. That is hard to believe. I did not pick up on that. I, I just recently rewatched the main events from night two, the Triangle Gate match and the Dream Gate match. The Triangle Gate match is excellent, and this is around the time where I'm, I'm definitely watching these shows. I'm now a fan of Dragon Gate, but... It's my first run through everything, so I, I'm not really able to pick up on booking patterns, and everything's new and exciting, so at the same time, like, nothing really sticks out, and I think at the time I had sev- severely undervalued 
this era of the team veteran unit and just how good they were with Kness, who could still pretty much go at this point. Shisa, who was great. Shima did a lot of great work, kind of uh, almost an underrated era of Shima's career, just because he wasn't really working at the top of the card. This is post Dreamgate run from him. So there's a lot of stuff to like there. And then the Dreamgate matches is terrific. And it wouldn't even be the only great Dreamgate match Ricochet had that week. It's just a few days later, March 6, 2014, in Corican Hall. Mike, I'll give you the full card just for fun. It began with Cyberkong KZ and Mondai Ryu defeating Kines, Kenichiro Rai, and Super Shisa. UT defeated Kotoka in a four-minute singles match. Gamma and Masaki Mochizuki defeated Don Fuji and Ryotsu Shimizu. Hulk and Doi defeated Kanda and Tanazaki. And then we get to the business end of the card with Yamato defeating T-Hawk in a no-ropes match. A nine-man tag team three-way elimination with Tozawa, Yoshino, and Shingo of Monster Express defeating Eita, Flamita, and Yosuke Santa Maria of the Millennials, as well as Genki Horiguchi, Jimmy Kagatora, and Jimmy Susumu of the Jimmies. All before main event open the Dreamgate title match, two Americans in the main event of Cork and Hall, Ricochet defeats Uha Nation. Yeah, this is one of those seminal uh, Corkins and Episodes Infinity because they sold out Cork and Hall with this. Well, with two Americans up top, a new champion making his V1, and Uha Nation's first ever Dream Key. And this is just like a big show. I remember how much I loved Fujiheya of Don Fuji and Ryota Shimizu. It just was like a really fun undercard tag team. And really, from my memory at least, you, you start from that match on for the last the last six matches there. Because I think at this time, all the Corkins were on Ustream. Like, I remember watching this, and it the show rocked. Yeah, this is a super good show. That Yamato T-Hawk match, I believe, and Mike agreed with me before we started recording, that that is the last no-ropes match that Drangate has booked. If you remember a no-ropes match later than Yamato versus T-Hawk, uh, please tweet at us at OpenVoiceGate. Let us know because we could not think of one. And that Ricochet versus Uha match, you know, they had that great match in Cork, and then they had a match in Evolve at the Brooklyn Lyceum for the Open the Freedom Gate title later on in 2014 that was also really good. So, you know, the WWE can't find anything to do with those guys, but I think they're pretty good wrestlers. <laughs> I mean, it was something that, so, now that now that we talked about this, Corkin, the end of Champion Gate was this huge uh, ovation. Everyone was kind of astonished because this was kind of one of the big things that have never happened and had a huge reaction, and then, Uha shows up and he goes, "Hey, he goes, hey, so you're champion, congratulations." But I think it's, I hope you enjoy that belt because I'm coming for it right now and I want to face you. And then Ricochet cut up. This was all in English, by the way, so the crowd was not following him that much. <laughs> and and then Ricochet was like, "Yes, we'll do this at Cork." And and Ricochet's typical, uh, not very good promo style. Yes, it almost a broken English promo from Ricochet. Although he grew up in Kentucky. Uh, it's, you know, the way he uh, made his living. More power to him. And then after this Cork and main event, Yamato comes out. He attacks Ricochet. And Uha says, hey, if you're going to wrestle him, you have to get through me. But Mike, that does not happen on our timeline. So we will not be talking about Yamato versus Uha Nation and the subsequent Yamato versus Ricochet match. What we will talk about the final time we'll talk about Dragon Gate Japan on this show a show that I don't believe either of us have seen, the March 16th Memorial Gate and Wakayama show. I bring this up for the latter half of the card, the title matches, mainly open the Brave Gate title match. Flamita defeats Genki Horiguchi 
and wins his first Open the Brave Gate title, a legendary Open the Brave Gate run that begins on a Memorial Gate and Wakayama show of all shows to begin that title run on. And then after that, Masato Yoshino and Uha Nation defeat Keizi and Yamato and Masaki Mochizuki and Super Shisa. There is an open the Triangle Gate match with Eita, T-Hawk, and UT winning the belts over Kanda, Susumu, and Tanazaki. And then your main event, Masato, or I'm not, not Masato Yoshino, but rather Akira Tozawa and Shingo Takagi retain the Twin Gate belts over BB Hulk and Naruki Doi. A very fun looking show, if I say so myself. Yeah, and the reason why we say we haven't seen it, this was only recently through Dragon Gate Network, they started airing these Wakayama shows. They were put on and more bought by Wakayama TV, which is a branch of MBS, which is which owns Gayora, but they would only come out on DVD, and they come out on DVD like six months later. I used to buy these, but this, was, this must have been before I bought them because I'm looking at the rest of this card, and it's an astounding-looking card. I mean, they loaded up this for a Wakayama show. Which Takayama versus one. Stalker Ichikawa. I made, if you're buying a Dragon Gate show and you're putting it on there and you're putting it on your local TV, you bring in Yoshihiro Takayama. <laughs> well, Mike, with that in mind, we return stateside. Again, we're going chronological here. So after the March 16th Memorial Gate show, we have a week of silence in America. No real newsworthy stuff from Gabe Sapolsky until March 24th with an email, a newswire, where the title of that newswire is in all caps... Get ready to jump out of your seat. And on March 24th, 2014, Gabe Sapolsky announces Chris Hero versus Masato Tanaka for Dragon Gate USA Open the Ultimate Gate on Friday night, April 4th. Mike, do you remember this announcement? And do you remember being concerned when Masato Tanaka was booked on this show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, th- that was the thing that was confirming what everyone was speaking about, about the visas. And I was like, okay, that match is cool. But, uh... You only had Yosuke Samaria on the last weekend. You've been decreasing the amount of fly-ins that you have from Japan. And uh, where are the big pieces? Where's Shima? Where's Akira Tozawa? Where are like the, the prominent faces of DGUSA from Dragon Gate? And no announcement there. And it was just kind of like the step that everyone needed to go like, all right, D, this is it. This is it. This is over. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is not a good sign. And from there we go... To Sunday, March 30th, 2014. And Mike, we have a bit of a scoop with a Z. Some scoops. This is something that I don't believe has ever been public information. It wasn't in the Observer. It wasn't in any F4Ws. What we have is screenshots of an email correspondence between Gabe Sapolsky and someone who, to you know, protect their identity, not that the mob's going to come out, not, not that Sal is going to come after them. <laughs> um, someone who was not affiliated with Drangit USA, Evolve, WWN, in any working capacity. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I, I, I think let's leave it at that. Yes. Because if we tell any more specifics, we'll give up who it is. Exactly. Uh, but Gabe had emailed this person on March 30th, one line, he said, are any of these guys over? And then you have a clear copy and paste from, I, I don't know, I'm assuming it was another email, but the font is different, the size of the font is different, and there's a background color on these names that is not there for Gabe's normal text. And the names are Kotoka, Tamanaga, Ryotsu, and Mondai Ryo, which is very funny because Gabe had booked Mondai Ryo a few years ago and clearly did not remember uh, that he booked him, uh, which is just delightful. Um... 
So what we have is basically a last-ditch effort to get four young Dragon Gate talents on this show. What happens is the person that Gabe emailed responded a day later and, you know, gave this rundown of, you know, Kotoka's this, this, you know, lightning rod, babyface Shimizu. This is pre big R Shimizu. This is still Ryotsu anime character Shimizu. You know, he's kind of wacky, but you know, I think he could work in the promotion. Tamanaga's a jobber, but he's fun. And Monday Ryu, you've booked before. He's not good, but you know, he's, he's not whatever. Uh, that email is sent, and then Gabe responds by saying, you know, thank you for your intelligence, but we got some feedback essentially saying to not use these guys, so we are not going to use them. And I don't think it's been public knowledge that my understanding of reading this situation is that there was a chance that Kotoko Tamanaga, Ryotsu Shimizu, and Mande Ryu could have been booked on this show. Which completely defeats the deflates the uh, public uh, justification for the ending of Dragon Gate USA, basically. Which which was, which was the fact they couldn't get visas, and then they would try again next year, and they just never mentioned that they were doing it. And they said that the brand is on hold. Yes, and that is uh, that is I, I you know I think to some extent it's true, but there was very clearly a last ditch effort just a few days before this show began to get these Japanese talents over. But instead, what happens is. Around the same time that Gabe responds back to this person saying that he's received word that they're not going to go forward using these talents, Gabe says publicly in a newswire on March 31st, it is with deep regret that the uh, that DGUSA must inform our audience of the unfortunate fact that the uh, Dragon Gate Japanese talent will not be able to perform on WrestleMania weekend shows. We have prepared a series of replacements. We have already booked Masato Tanaka versus Chris Hero. As the entire pro wrestling world converges on New Orleans this week, the last thing our audience wants to hear or read about is promotional drama. We know you have practically unlimited choices this coming week. We are going to make sure all of you who choose to support DGUSA are rewarded with the best experience possible. Here are some replacements. And then Gabe goes on to announce Loki making uh, his Dragon USA return and having his first high-profile singles matches in over a year at the Friday and Saturday night events. It will be Loki versus Trent Beretta on this show and then Loki versus Johnny Gargano on next week's show. And then also the announcement that bad influence of Christopher Daniels and Frankie Kazarian will wrestle on the main event dark match of Mercury Rising 2014. Mike, I want to let you know now, I have that match and we will be reviewing it next week. Sounds good. Sounds good. So yeah, this is his attempt to make good is completely have a show divorced of any Dragon Gate continuity. So Gabe goes on to say in these emails pretty much right after sending out that newswire, maybe right before, around the same time. It was on the same day, March 31st. Gabe says to the person he was corresponding with, we managed to get Loki, so we will have Loki Beretta on Friday and Loki versus Gargano on Saturday. So two fresh, awesome matches for him. Then on Saturday, we have Daniels and Kazarian in a dark match for the live ticket holders, and we'll get them awesome opponents. Now, Mike, do you think that was the bravados, or do you think Gabe had something else planned? I think he was billing it there. I think it was going to be the bravados. I think at that point, given where the wrestling world is in 2014, he wasn't going to suddenly reunite the American Wolves here. Oh, God, can you imagine, though? Uh, So Gabe goes on to say, we still have one more shoe to drop, but I don't even want to tease you with it in case it doesn't happen. It would put Saturday's show over the top. Also, the lineups shaped up nicely in general. Uh, Mike... 
I don't think that last shoe to drop is Roderick Strong. I mean, is that what Gabe was hyping up here? Because we'll talk about Roddy next week. He's on those shows. But uh, from Gabe's email, and this is not Gabe in seller's mode. This is, you know, a, a, a human form of Gabe Sapolsky, if there is mm-hmm. one. That doesn't sound like Roderick Strong. Maybe he had other plans, but it just does. When he was putting this together by that time, it would have been very hard to pick up people to get there, you know? Like, if that makes sense. I, I, I don't think that he would have. It, this isn't 2019 where basically everyone in wrestling converges on one city for a weekend. This was 2014 where there were a lot of events and people still came to those weekends, but it was not the. It, it was not nearly the festival of a weekend that it became. So maybe he had something there, but it just doesn't seem right. It, it doesn't pass my personal smell test, I guess. So Gabe's final note in this email transaction, and I will read him verbatim here. He says, I'm going crazy having to, tr- to do the best we can to make things up. We literally missed the deadline on getting the DG guys by one day after months of work. I exhausted every possibility. Shelly, Omega, Devitt, Anyone that would mean something big. No luck until key and bad influence. Well, Tanaka was a huge strike too. It's been rough, especially with taking all this abuse online. I mean, it's like 12 years I haven't done anything in good faith at all, and now I'm some carny. We have literally spent every day in the last two months thinking we'd be able to announce the DG guys. We are still doing the trios tourney. If we can get one shoe to drop, it will have a match that will make your head explode. So... He's spinning there. He's absolutely spinning there. When earlier in that week, they emailed the person. He already listed four names that Dragon Gate was prepared to send over. So it's not a visas thing. At least that's my interpretation of that. Yeah, I, I think having a list of names there. Now, there's something I'll read you from The Observer in just a second that will maybe contradict that point. But having the list of names there is pretty damning for Gabe. Now, I also think there's some validity to his point that... You know, I think I've always been a little bit more pro-Gabe than most people. I think Gabe handles himself very poorly, even in situations where he's trying to do the right thing, even when he's coming from a a good-hearted perspective. And this is one of those times where, you know, I, I guess, sympathize for him to some extent, where, yeah, I don't think Gabe was maliciously trying to hold Drangate USA shows on their biggest weekend with no Drangate talent, but it's also not a good look when we have we have these names here. Now, the one thing before you respond to that that I will read you, that this was new information to me from the April 14th Wrestling Observer Newsletter, where Dave says, Drangate talent from Japan will be back in May for shows in New York. Apparently, there was an issue regarding renewals of working visas for the talent and them not coming in on time to get talent out for the past weekend. The issue with that is that it is an evolved show in May in New York, and I can double check, but I believe it was already announced as an Evolve show in May in New York by the time that was in The Observer. I think everybody knew going forward that at the end of May, Gabe is doing Evolve in Queens, and I think it was May 9th and May 10th. Yeah, I mean, all of this, just the fact that this person was asked about Shimizu, Tamanaga, Kotoka, and Mondai Ryu, completely like, do I think there's issues with renewing visas? 
yeah probably like i given the the lifespan of the promotion and my understanding of working visas you'd have they would have have to been up for renewal one time or another like don't get me wrong like that like i fully believe that part but the fact that the japanese office presented these names and the fact that they already seemingly had a card for queens for evolve just completely just like like again i it's spin to me yeah so just to confirm on April 10th, 2014, so coming out of this weekend, and this would have been published right around the same time as the April 14th Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Gabe had announced that it was Evolve specifically returning to Queens uh, with no Drangate talents hinted at, announced, or you know even alluded to in some way. So I'm choosing to believe that the names that we got in the email were for these New Orleans shows and that they could have been, you know, Monday Ryu is the one that sticks out a little bit, but you could have billed Kotoka, Tamanaga, and Shimizu as, you know, the future of Drangate taking over this trios tournament. I, I don't think Gabe was necessarily worried about fitting into Drangate canon at this time, but that would have worked and that would have been realistic. Monday Ryu is the one name there that sticks out a little bit as being odd, but from the evidence we have, I have no reason to believe that, Kotoka, Tamanagu, Ryotsu Shimizu, and Mande Ryu weren't at some point at least on paper as possibilities for New Orleans late into the month of March. Yeah, and given the time for those three, that would, that would have fit the times the time span for when they would have wanted to send people out on excursion. Like Kotoka, that would have been very late for his excursion. Shimizu, that would have been right about the right time, and of course Tomonaga, Tomonaga. So like all of this like lines up to me in some fashion for it, but. I just, I just look at this and I look at how things were said publicly and it's just like, it seems like to me that Gabe clearly had no idea who these four people were, especially considering that, that, uh, Mondairi was over as Super Shenlong too. Like he was over in the States for, I believe the first anniversary weekend, right? Yes. Like that was, because he worked the Chikara show as well. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So and then someone told him to not book them. And Dragon Gate was trying there. And Dragon Gate, like, if we want to, like, fast forward past everything and talk about 2019, High Spots tried to bring in Dragon Gate, but Dragon Gate insisted on visas. So, like, and then later Dragon Gate said, like, okay, we will still fly our, our folks out there. And at the very least, uh, the president of Dragon Gate Japan, Toru Kido, was in New York. So it's not like... It, it, it's not like that Japan wasn't doing this when this was a massive money loser for them because they were because if my understanding was right, I think Dragon Gate Japan paid for all the tickets from Japan to America. So I could see this probably as the point where when he turned down these wrestlers, that was it in the relationship. The final note we have before we talk about Open the Ultimate Gate 2014 is a note from the April 7th Wrestling Observer Newsletter where Dave notes that Ricochet and Johnny Gargano have signed new deals with Drangate USA, which will prevent them from working Ring of Honor going forward. So, very interesting. You know, I've had this working theory that Gargano's title run was essentially worked around this idea that by the time Gargano drops his belt, Gabe wanted him not out of the promotion that he was sick of him, but wanted him you know, it was prepping him, grooming him for national television style wrestling. And instead they uh, sign long-term deals with Dragon Gate USA. Which for Ricochet, that makes sense at the very least, because this was still another year or so before Lucha Underground. So 
that, that makes sense with that for him. However, for like Gargano, yeah, it was very clear that they were trying to position him for uh, getting signed by WWE or TNA in one fashion or another. And I guess it just didn't happen. I knew he had a lot of tryouts before eventually DIY got him signed. So it, it wasn't for a lack of trying. But yeah, it does feel like, and especially within this match, it felt like that this could have been the write-off for Johnny Gargano. And with that in mind, Mike, it is time we open the Ultimate Gate. Open the Ultimate Gate 2014. You have the floor. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network. And I just want to let you know about a brand new sponsor we have for the network. It's Eufy. And let me tell you a little bit about their newest product, the Eufy Video Smart E330. This isn't your everyday smart lock. This is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell offering triple the security and triple the convenience. Instead of loading up your door with a bunch of different devices, you install one, and it takes care of everything in a complete package. It's not just about the home security, though. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is also for convenience. No more worrying about losing keys. You can let each member of your family get a password. You can monitor their movement in and out of the house. You can keep an eye on your packages. You can check in on your house while you're away. There is so much you can do with this product. Best of all, it is easy to install and set up. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver. Leave that drill in the toolbox. The Eufy has keyless entry, a 0.3 second fingerprint recognition, a rechargeable battery with a four-month lifespan, two-way audio from the lock, enhanced night vision, 24-7 customer support, and you'll love this, none of those pesky monthly fees. Eufy sent me a Smart Lock 330, and I've loved it so far. It allows me peace of mind when I'm at work or when I'm away on one of my patented vacations. Plus, it helps me keep track of deliveries to the house, saves me a trip back to the car if I just need to run in for something and I forgot my keys, and the two-way audio system works well for those unwanted guests at my front door. No, I do not need new siding or windows or a roof. Thank you, though. You can simply tell them you aren't interested from the comfort of your couch. Now, are you ready to ditch the others and join the Eufy revolution? Of course you are. Get started today by searching Eufy Video Lock on your search engine of choice. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can finally, once and for all, gain complete control of your door. Once again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock ufeofficial.com slash video lock and we thank them for sponsoring the voice wrestling podcast network all right so as we said at the top this is open the ultimate gate 2014 from the McAllister auditorium on the campus of tulane university in new orleans louisiana on april 4th 2014 and we open up with terrible hard cam lasers going off some real flow slam vibes and the thing that frustrated me, perhaps other than some production things I'll talk about later, but frustrated me the most, a pony ring. They had not a standard ring that would go up to whomever's waist on the outside. It's a pony ring, which I think is only two feet off the ground. Yeah, this would have fit in in like world of sport. And the fact that this sure. is this is the ring that Drangit USA chooses to close out their existence with, I, again, you know, do you think there's any validity to Gabe thinking like, well, we don't have Drangate Town on the show. Maybe we shouldn't use the canvas. Or do you, th- do you think this is laziness? I think it's whoever provided the, I, I think it was Wildcat who provided him with the ring and yes. this is the ring they had available. Like, that's my guess. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I, you wouldn't want to use a canvas that is, is too big for the ring you have. It is 
just a very bad look though oh it's absolutely atrocious looking look and then speaking about that case open the united gate championship match start off the show is the bravado brothers of harlem and lancelot bravado with the front with the offensive lineman for the bravado bandwagon moose defeating the premier athlete brand of Anthony Nice and Gil Conley, accompanied by Mr. A and Sue Young, when the Bravado brothers hit the gentleman's agreement on Anthony Nice in 15 minutes and 20 seconds. One of my least favorite matches in Dragon Gate USA history. Just depressing. It is a disaster on multiple levels. The highlight of this match is Cole Cabano on commentary. It, it, just brief aside, the fact that World Wrestling Entertainment, I know they later sued Cole Cabana, but the fact that they didn't hire him as a commentator around this time period blows my mind, because he is so good on commentary, and specifically him doing a low-key impression really, really made me laugh, because other than that, this match was a total disaster. It was the two top heel teams in the company wrestling each other, where neither one of them established that they were going to be the babyfaces in this match. It was just like watching two heels wrestle, which... I think there's probably guys in this universe, in this in the independent landscape at the time that could have gotten away with this, but the Bravados were an incredibly character-heavy act, and Nice and Conley and the Premier Athlete brand were doing a lot of heavy character stuff. So you just had four heels fighting one another in a match that had no pacing, was all over the place. Mike, unless I missed something, the bravado tag rules that were heavily established on the last two shows were just non-existent in this match. And that's all before the finish, which I thought was a total disaster. Yeah, and the match itself before the finish wasn't very good. Uh, Neither of these teams are over, so there's no investment for the crowd to choose one side to be the babyfaces to begin with. And Caleb Conley really doesn't have any juice now recently turning back heel after his pretty short babyface run. We kind of felt like he was getting over as a babyface. Am I wrong in saying that? I like him as a babyface. I, I thought he was great. Like, yeah, I, I thought that there was some heart there, and it's utterly devoid here. Basically, every dive in this match was missed, including a quebrada that Anthony Nice went too far and completely overshot a Bravado brother. It just was a mess. You know, I, I, will, the- I will say this, and I, I'm not a wrestler. I don't typically like breaking down stuff in this fashion. I have a hard time blaming that on Nice because if you look at where the Bravado's position, and I know the ring is tiny, it you know Nice could have very easily done this this Cape Rana from one side of the ring to the other if he wanted to. The Bravado brother is so close to the ropes. I don't think it would have been physically possible for Nice to have jumped and done a flip in that short of a distance. I think the Bravado brother was out of position there, but either way, it was a bad look for everybody involved. And it could have been the fact that a pony ring, I think the most that they are 16 by 16. So maybe it was like your perception wise, you're like, okay, this feels like the right place to be laid for a cabrata. And then Nice was like, okay, I'm going to go do my cabrata, but it just looked awful. Uh, Lenny and Colt tried to save it, but it just was a bad match. And then the, the finish was like a big schmoz with Mr. A and Moose. And then it kind of just finished mediocre with just then after the schmoz, just go to finish, hit the gentleman's agreement on Nice and then get out of here. It just was bad. Yeah, Mr. A comes in the ring to run interference for the premier athlete brand. But at least I don't have it in my notes. I think he just stood there. Like, I think he just got in the ring and stared at everybody, and everybody kind of froze until Moose, who I thought fucked up the finish 
on the last Brooklyn show against uh, Chuck Taylor and Drew Gulak were... Mo- I- I choose to blame that on Moose because even in 2014, Drew Gulak was uh, an excellent professional wrestler where Gulak had to completely do a 180 to get in position for Moose to spear him. This time, I'm just assuming Moose was late and that's why Mr. A ended up looking like an idiot before Moose could come in and spear him. It made everybody look bad. It's just Moose was weirdly so unimpressive in this role, which is weird considering, you know, he bounced to Ring of Honor in, in June of 2014, I think, and kind of comes across like a major league act pretty quickly there, but in Evolve, he is just a walking disaster, and then you have this deflating finish. This is what I feel like is almost a generous two stars. Yeah, I was too flat as well. It just is something that you've already pretty much killed off whatever, uh, charm mr a had when he whiffed in brooklyn and then he had this again and the, he, he just this act is dead now the premier athlete brand was dead there and the bravado brothers who i was always a little bit more down on than other than you were just still kind of just exist and they're doing character and it doesn't work when you don't have a babyface team to go against i mean they're fine but the match itself was just like like we didn't even mention this there was like this step over taupe that harlem bravado did that was really funny and i say funny in a way that you that sometimes i like watching dash cam videos of like car wrecks in russia funny Jesus. like you've never heard of those <laughs> no, like the russian mike i watch ridiculousness that's an entire category on that show it's just it's less charming when rob dyrdek's not the one saying it <laughs> that's fair that's I, fair. But I, I will say on that dive i get no i cut you off go ahead finish your thought on the dive oh, i'll oh, defend I'll, it Oh, I was going to say, no one caught him at all. So, thank you. How is Mr. A not... That's just... That's a Dragon Gate thing. And that is, in a weird way, like, if five years into this promotion, if the Americans should have learned anything about working with Dragon Gate talent, it's that if you're going to do this crazy, like, walk-the-plank-style dive off of the ring post to the floor, and you have Mr. A available dive onto Mr. A. That's a big target that's hard to miss. But instead, he dives onto two skinny guys in Conley and Neeson. Of course they don't catch him. Like, I would have I catch him either. That looks like it sucks to take. Yeah, yeah, no. It's just... Th- this match was just completely... Like, we're being terrible when we say it's two stars. And I think another reason why we're terrible is what we're going to talk about after the mic segment here. So unless we want to bury this anymore, case, okay, so let's talk about the post-match. No, I'm so excited to get into what comes next. So, Anthony picks up the microphone. Remember when he was really charming going, Hey, I fucking rock? That's way gone at this point. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. The character assassination of Anthony Neese is just, it's awful. Because again, when, you know, he worked some shows in 2011, and we were like, oh, that's, you know, that's a guy. He'll show up again later. When he showed up at WrestleMania week in 2013 and into the th- the fourth anniversary weekend, you know, run the tape. I was like, holy shit, this guy's so good. I had no idea that Anthony East was ever this good. And my God, does it die a quick and painful death. It's just incredibly, incredibly like it's, and it's not necessarily niece. It's how he's booked and the things that he's, the promos he's trying to give. Like, yeah, some of the promo, of course, is his fault, but it doesn't feel like he's doing much different. But just the booking and the angles around him are just detestable. They're just bad. He was a really protected character when this Premier Athlete brand stuff started. And as soon 
as he started looking weak, as soon as he started losing, whatever effect was there in the beginning was completely and utterly removed. It was gone. Yeah, so he grabs the microphone. He's basically incomprehensible, but he's mad at Mr. A. Sue Young then calls off him, uh, niece and Conley from attacking Mr. A. And you can kind of hear Sue, Sue Young a little bit better, but she says she berates him and tells him to beat the next person that comes across the apron and put them straight on that apron. And then a- and it's A.R. Fox. And then Colt covers before Rod Neamey, someone who is going to be a, a big figure if you listen to the accompanying podcast everything evolves is now joining Lenny Leonard on commentary. Yeah. So a, a lot happens there. The short of it is that Anthony Nice cuts a promo that we can't hear Sue young because she's yelling, cuts a promo that we can kind of hear AR Fox comes out. Uh, Cole Cabana has to go to a booking at that point. So Ron Neamey comes in the booth. I like Ron Neamey's commentary. I don't know how other people feel about it. I always thought he and Lenny worked well together. And then we have the biggest, like, why not shoulder shrug match of all time, A.R. Fox versus Mr. A. Yeah, so A.R. Fox defeats Mr. A with Sue Young in 13 minutes and 14 seconds with a low main pain. If we just said that and that was the result, you'd be like, okay, no, that makes sense. Uh, wow, you got Mr. A up for the low main pain. That's something. But it's what happens during this match case that makes it an outright dud. Ma'am, I can assure you, that cat is a trained professional. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the the pony ring completely handicaps uh, Miss uh, Ar Fox's offense. You can't really do a kickflip when you have less ground for you to count on for falling. So you have to do a tighter rotation, and it looks bad. Uh, Mister A has no credibility, but Ar Fox was trying to make it look good. Partway through, Evelise came out to stop Sue Young, and then. Larry Dallas came out with his new signee, uh, Teddy Hart, with Mr. Money, puts Mr. Money on the top turnbuckle and proceeds to beat the crap out of both of these guys. The referee turns around kind of dumbfounded and said, well, I guess you tagged both of them. The match can continue. Not calling it a no contest. Like, that would be a no contest at that point. And then they go to a finish that Mr. A can't get up on the top turnbuckle and eventually does, and then we get the worst low low main pain I've ever seen. Okay. There's a few things I want to talk about here. The Teddy Hart stuff is fucking insane. I did I did not remember him being on this show. I only thought he showed up on the second show. So I did not know that this was coming. And when Larry Dallas walked out with Teddy Hart, I lost my fucking mind because I had no recollection of this happening in this match because you have this evilly Sue Young cat fight, which, you know, whatever. I... In a weird way, in a weird way, I understand what this match was trying to accomplish. This was a bad ECW tribute that highlighted all of the bad things about ECW. But I like this was bad, but I didn't hate it, if that makes sense. I lost my emotional connection to this match as soon as Teddy Hart came out. But the fact that Teddy Hart comes out, he beats everybody up, he goes to the back, and then the match just continued is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It was like a video game glitch where Teddy Hart mode was activated, and as soon as they figured out how to counterbalance that, he walked backstage, and then AR Fox stood up selling none of what just happened to him, and they went on and had their match like they were planned to do. One of the funniest things I've ever seen. 
you know what? Good for Air Fox. Good for Air Fox. I appreciate that. It, it's it's shocking. I mean, Teddy Hart comes out, and again, just the middle of the match, and this is after the opening match where Mr. A just stood in the middle of the ring waiting for Moose to hit him with a spear. So we're already in this weird, like, 2007 TNA zone where the rules are just different for every match. It's like Brian Alvarez used to say, every TNA wrestler has his own set of rules. That's exactly what was happening here. We just had interference, like it was a 1998 Monday Night Raw, and it was happening just because, and it just so happens that that interference in this match was Teddy Hart, who came out, did the powerbomb backbreaker to AR Fox. I'm sure he did something to Mr. A. I don't remember specifically what it was. Taunts and then leaves. And it's fucking insane. And then I, you... I mean, go ahead, sorry. And then they go to the finish. It, it's something for me that... I know it gave you TNA vibes. This gave me Mercury Rising 2010 vibes. Oh. Like... It, well... I've... Okay... I was annoyed by the Teddy stuff in Phoenix because it like maybe it's just the perception of Drangit USA at the time where it's like, man, I really don't want this on my Drangit USA shows. I am not annoyed by Mr. A versus AR Fox with Teddy Hart running interference. I found this entire thing uh, to be cringeworthy and embarrassing and at the same time hilarious. Well, at this part, this promotion's dead. So it's easier to be like, oh, yeah, this is hilarious here where that was still in the vibrancy of that of where Dragon Gate USA was at that time. So I, I understand that. But it's just was something that you just kind of take a step back from everything. And you're like, what are we doing here? And it's just so abrupt. Like, you know what this run in was like? Uh, did you ever get a chance to play the N64 Aki uh, wrestling games like WCW versus the World, WCW, I, NWO I, I have not, but I, I know the direction you're going with this. Yeah, where someone can pick up a controller and just do a run-in. Thank you, Joe Gagne's Funtime Arcade, for teaching me that. Yep. Thanks, Joe Gagne, friend of the show there. But th- that's the vibe you got here. And at this point, you had arguably one of the most disastrous first 45 minutes of the Dragon Gate USA show because it's not like that these matches were short and then dumb things happen both these matches got significant time so 15 minutes on the opener 13 14 or 13 minutes 14 seconds on the second match and then five minutes in between that and then you just had like just the weird like everyone just going like this is really bizarre and then let's have Rich Swan versus Biff Busick that sounds great the final point I'll make on the AR Fox versus Mr. A match and I know I disagree with Mike on this it's not like this match is impossible to rate because of the Teddy stuff, but the AR Fox versus Mr. A portions of the match. Is it what I want from AR Fox on WrestleMania weekend? No, it is not. I didn't think it was bad though. And it speaks to just how talented AR Fox is that, you know, he essentially had dollar store roadkill to deal with in this match. And Fox was like, okay, I'm just going to bounce off of him. I'm going to run at him and bump, and that's going to be our match. And then at the very end, I'll do my signature move, which I, I did not think looked as bad as Mike did. I thought it was actually impressive that Fox was able to do a low main pain with this guy. It It is really, really incredible to see how much AR Fox has grown from United Philly in a scramble match to now, because this was a very impressive carry job in my mind from AR Fox. And that's entirely fair. I I just think that Mr. A is so bad at this point that anything that 
uh, Air Fox does. And he does do a lot to make this somewhat work is completely destroyed by the run-in and then Mr. A's inability and lack of credibility whatsoever. Yeah, it's, again, not what I would want for AR Fox to do on this weekend. I just refuse to believe there's not a better matchup for him somewhere on the card. But for, oh, absolutely. for, for what it was, again, removing <laughs> removing the Teddy Hart stuff... I didn't I didn't hate AR Fox versus Mr. A as a match. Impossible to rate because we had the Teddy stuff, but I enjoyed the actual match for what it was. I understand. I understand. I, I mean like this is funny, bad. Like to be fair, like this is so ridiculous and preposterous that it's super funny. Well, yes, just... I think the Teddy stuff is funny, bad. I did not have a ton of issues. Now it wasn't a good match, but I did not have a ton of issues with Fox versus Mr. A from like an in-ring standpoint, but that's just we just disagree on that. That's fair. That's fair. And then we went into the third match of the show. It was Rich Swan versus Biff Busick. He defeated Biff Busick with an Oklahoma Stampede in 10 minutes and 31 seconds. And when Biff Busick came out in like warm-up clothes, I thought he was going to wrestle that way, case. And that completely I was like, "All right, this is going to be another absurd thing." And then I thought this turned out to be a perfectly passable match. It was probably the worst version of a Rich Swan versus Biff Busick match there could be, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I like it was fine because it was kind of a normal match, but then I thought the finish came out of nowhere. It was just it was bizarre because they do this kind of you know this roll up sequence and then it, it which didn't look good, and then Swan rolls him up that way for the win. It. It was just a, it was a bummer because you know, I've gone on and on on this series about how good I think Rich Swan is and how I think Gabe devalued him and he was so underrated. And then he comes in here against Biff, and by 2014, you know, Biff is well on his way to being a top-tier indie worker, and I thought they had a very flat three-star match here. Yeah, I was three and a quarter. It, it was something where, like, this was also worked very slow, and... It was something where, like, there was a pile driver. There was a pile driver that th- they talked about the pile driver rule in in Los and why well, I want to say Los Angeles, uh, Louisiana, and that took me back to when I was in WrestleMania weekend, and, and everyone was like, "So how are they going to have Nick Gage versus uh, uh, Pentel Cero M if you can't have Hardcore or uh, pile drivers?" They, they found a way around it, but the rest of it was kind of fine and it felt like it was kind of abrupt as if that everything else because of Teddy Hart went super long and they had to cut stuff there. That is, you know, that is probably what happened. And I had not thought about that, but now that you say it, I mean, you know, the way AR Fox and Mr. A reacted to Teddy Hart coming out was that they didn't know Teddy was going to do the run in. And from mm-hmm. the aftermath of it, I, <laughs> and AR Fox kind of shrugging it all of it off. That, that might've been what had happened. And there's just no way that the Teddy stuff didn't run long because it's Teddy Hart. So they probably had to cut some stuff. I, I don't know. I thought it was it, it was an awkward match. Uh, like you mentioned, they teased a pile driver at one point because the athletic commission had banned the pile driver. Everybody had to get blood work done before this weekend. And it was it was deflating because, you know, I thought the first match was actively bad. The second match was stupid, but I found enjoyment in it. I was kind of hoping this was going to steer the ship in the right direction, and instead it was it was just a disappointing three-star match. Yeah, like I was three and a quarter, but we've talked before about what a good three and a quarter and what a bad three and a quarter is. This was a bad one. Yeah, that's very fair. And then we went into kind of an interesting match just given who's all involved and given the fact that where they all came from and 
how they kind of then kind of just had this match out of nowhere. It was the colony of Fire Ant and Grant versus the Gentleman's Club of Drew Gulak and Chuck Taylor. The colony would win with the Chikara special by Green Ant on top of Drew Gulak in 14 minutes and 31 seconds. And I just thought this was fine. What were your thoughts? If fine is exactly what it was. It was a lower tier Wrestle Factory tribute match with the idea being that I guess the night before it evolved, Orange Cassidy had walked out on the Gentleman's Club. I have no recollection of that, and I remember a lot from Evolve 28, which we'll talk <laughs> about next week, uh, but I guess Orange Cassidy walked out, and so you had Taylor and Gulak kind of bickering with each other throughout the match. Another match, and maybe you know, knowing what we know now, having our crystal ball, Gabe was planting the seeds, because I thought the finish in Biff versus Swan came out of nowhere, I thought the finish here, which was weird because it was a submission finish with Green Ant tapping out Gulak, I thought that came out of nowhere as well. Like, I thought the match was gearing up for this almost Drangate-like finishing stretch. And then what happened was we almost had uh, the precursor to, like, the grapple fuck flash submission finish out of nowhere. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's something that, with it, it was done in a way that I was like, okay, as someone who watched enough Chikara... I was like, all right, I bought into the finish. But if you're someone who doesn't watch Chikara and you're only watching these because of WrestleMania weekend shows, how are you to know anything? So it's just, it, it was abrupt. And the one thing is, is that we would soon learn that catch point stands for competition. And that's what, <laughs> and, and that's what it is. But it, it's also something that's kind of remarkable given that like these four guys would have rested each other under different gimmicks or under different permutations for better parts of six years. And this was just, kind of there it was gentleman's three uh the, the 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 real high point of this match for me was how psyched ron Nimi was for uh kaiju big battle after the show that is uh, that is very much the most dated part of the show not booking teddy hart to do a run in but the excitement for kaiju big battle on commentary feels very 2014 <laughs> yeah i was at three and a quarter on this because you know one of the things that i've picked up from this series i i think he's been booked in a lot of poor settings but gulak being what I consider to be good dating back to 2012 is something that surprised me because, you know, there's obviously the freaks that have looked at him as one of the best wrestlers in the world. I've always liked him. I've never really put him on that tier. E- even within his own company, I've always thought Biff Music was better. And, you know, obviously your Zack Sabre Juniors and your guys like that that work a little bit of a flashier grappling style, I've preferred to Gulak. He's someone that's impressed me in this series, though, just with how good he was from such a young age. So I thought he looked good working with the ants here. And then he ends up tapping out, which leads us to an angle after the match. Yeah. So Gulak attacks Taylor and then he Gulak yells at him on the microphone. And the only thing I can make out of it was that this was the end of the gentleman's club. Yeah. Another promo where I did not understand a single word that Drew Gulak said, but he turns on Chuck Taylor. He beats him up. And that would lead to the the May Evolve shows that we just talked about. Chuck Taylor loses to Drew Gulak on Evolve 29. And then <laughs> this this is the final Chuck Taylor match in Evolve for two years. A three-way match where Taylor loses uh, with Ethan Page. They lose to Jigsaw. Jigsaw defeats Chuck Taylor and Ethan Page is the final Chuck Taylor match in Evolve until he does the all-caps Dustin run a few years later. So Chuck Taylor is oh. finally wrapping up with the promotion. No, uh, he does do one more shot in, in 
2015 where the losing team must break up oh. and it was Ronan versus uh, Moose and the Bravado Brothers. I, and that was it for him I, for, I, I stand for like corrected. 18 That's months. Right. He, came, he came in on that weekend, did a loser Leafs town match that he won and then wasn't booked again. But, he, you know, he's booked. That's the, that's the May Evolve shows. They run a triple shot in Florida in August. And then right. they run September in New York and then China in October. He's on the China shows. He comes back for that one Evolve show in January, and then he's done. You're right. I stand corrected. Yeah, and looking at the remaining Ronin matches, it is just insane because after that one, they Gargano and Rich Swan lose to the premier athlete brand on WrestleMania weekend by referee's decision. Then in Orlando, they win the titles from the premier athlete brand in a street fight, and then they defeat uh, uh, Drew Gulak and Tracy Williams and LaBoom. Well, Mike, that was it for Mike, Ronin. two weeks from now, two weeks from now on our wrap-up show, I'm going to take you through what happened with the Open the Freedom Gate title and the Open the United Gate titles after Drangit USA ran its final show. And we'll be talking a lot about that that post-prime Ronan run that I know you have so many fond memories of. <laughs> <laughs> so next up is Trent versus Loki, where Trent Beretta defeats Loki with a psycho knee in 18 minutes and 12 seconds. I really enjoyed this for what it was. Now, before we talk about the match... I want to run down, this is, again, this is April of 2014, the last four matches that Loki had had before he worked this match. September 15th, 2013, in All Japan Pro Wrestling, Kenzo and Takawamore defeat D'Lo Brown and Loki. After that, Akibono defeats Loki in a singles match on All Japan's Royal Road Tournament. That would be Key's final match in All Japan. And then February of 2014, he works two shots in Australia for New Horizon Pro Wrestling. He loses a three-way match with Chris Weiss and Robbie Eagles. And then the next night, February 8th, 2014, defeats Robbie Eagles in a singles match. And now we have Key versus Trent, a truly insane five-match stretch. Yeah, that is absolutely nuts. Like, I'm still wrapping my head around it, but... Hey, he got flew out to Australia at a time that he probably got good money for it because there was nothing, not a whole lot else happening in Australia. But you know, that's that's low key for you. And you know, wrestle, that makes and wrestle Robbie Eagles, which I would really like to see twenty twenty one low key versus twenty twenty one Robbie Eagles. I, I I would, I did it YouTube, but I would like to see if that key versus Eagles match from twenty fourteen is available because that that sounds like it could be decent. And and I thought this Trent match was decent. I I mean Trent gets nothing key beats the shit out of him and i would love to talk to trent who is uh not exactly uh sharing one of the davy richards low-key mentality you know trent's the guy that likes to have a laugh to say the least and low-key beats the shit out of him this entire match up until the finish but because low-key was so vicious because this was so one-sided for so long i thought it was entertaining as hell yeah, I really like this. I, I like the idea of Trent Beretta in 2014 kind of already showing the shades so that you would see him in, in New Japan and in All Elite Wrestling. You know, like, Trent was great in this, like, just being this compelling babyface, calling back, calling back, and then gets his shot, hits the knee, and that's it. Gets, like, the flash knockout, which I thought 
was really kind of cool. Uh, they did talk about, you've probably heard of this, the Jersey All-Pro match with Loki and Sammy Callahan, where Sammy Callahan was knocked out in the first exchange. They did talk about that in commentary, which was like, oh yeah, that was during this time as well. I don't, I don't think I knew that. I, I guess I, I heard them reference it on commentary, but it didn't click with me. It was, you know, it's just kind of, you know, Lenny was talking and I was listening to him, but not necessarily taking it in. I did not know about that match, I don't think, which is crazy because I would like to see that. That sounds good. Loki and Sammy Callahan had a match at AAW in 2017 that I had in my match of the year. It was my number 10 match of the year that year. Uh, it was fucking bonkers. Abyss does a run-in in a low-key versus Sammy Callahan match in AAW, and I th- still thought it was a four-and-a-half-star match. So those two <laughs> ended up having very good chemistry years later. Yeah, I, I forget which uh, Bob Poppin' Dogs and Talking Hogs had this, but it was it, it was probably one of the Sammy one. Maybe it was the Sammy, and uh, maybe it was the one that was Sammy Callahan and Ricochet, where he talks about this that like he was completely knocked out into the match, completely concussed, and you know, <laughs> low key being low key. Uh, I really like this, and maybe this is one of those things that on these shows I feel like as we're getting towards ends here that. After a lot that I really dislike, I kind of maybe overrate things here, but I went four stars on this. I really enjoyed this. Okay, I'm not that high. I'm at three and a half, uh, but I really respect what they did because, you know, I, I obviously Key beats him up, but I thought Trent bumped really well for some of the stuff. You know, Key at one point hits a John Woo dropkick, and because of the small ring they're working in, I think Trent literally bumped halfway across the ring and ended up in the corner on this John Woo kick, but it, it looked it looked incredible. It was really, it's not good to build, you know, it, like if this if we were watching this match in a vacuum with no context, we would come away from this going, oh, they're building Loki as like a future world champion. He looked so dominant in this match. Obviously not the goal, but this was exactly what Key wants. Like this was a great showcase for him, and he looked awesome. Trent played his role tremendously, and then they hit this flash knee at the end, and Mike. The crowd gasped at the finish. They couldn't believe that Trent beat Loki clean. Yeah, and it was a really cool finishing stretch because he was up for the Warrior's way. Loki was up on the top rope and Trent was dangling below. And then Trent was able to just get out of it and then hit the Basaiku knee. And when the crowd just was like, wow. Because if you remember how Loki was booked in 2011, 2012, Loki wasn't taking any of those falls, brother. <laughs> no, not exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of remarkable, like in this way. Like, I wonder what have had to happen for Loki to agree to put over Trent Brett in 2014. I'm sure he got a fuck ton of money. I mean, Gabe, you know, again, whether the visa situation is as accurate as Gabe described it or not, the bottom line is Gabe needed stars for this show. And then he knew that he needed stars long-term, so one of those guys was going to have to take a fall. And Key's the guy that did that. And it was, you know, weird, like weirdly good booking. Like, I think Trent came mm-hmm. away from this match looking awesome. And I don't remember off the top of my head how they follow up with it. Uh, but, you know, Trent is obviously a mainstay and evolved for another year and a half. I mean, I don't, I don't know if people remember the fact that Gabe had booked Rapongi Vice, uh, Trent was with them that long, well into his New Japan run, and uh, yeah, this was this was just a lot of fun. I thought Key looked great because it was exactly what he does well, and Trent bumped his ass off for him. So I'm at three and a half. It was really fun. Yeah, no, this was an absolute blast. Then they 
I I don't remember if this was like an intermission thing, but they showed us the uh, the scrolling graphic for interminable amount of time, and then Lenny Leonard got onto got onto the PA system and then announced for Santa Clara, saying that we are the only ones within five miles of Santa Clara. No other show will be within five miles of Santa Clara in WWE, and it announced the fact that it would be WWN, it would be Evolve, and it would be Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, well, obviously, Dragon Gate USA does not come back in 2015, but Gabe really won the turf war in Northern California because the Ring of Honor event that year, they end up in Redwood City, and I don't know the exact proximity from where Gabe Gabe ran to where Redwood City, where Ring of Honor ran was, but... I remember the building that Ring of Honor ran looked like shit, and I actually kind of liked the building that Gabe Gabe ran that year. So for once, from a production standpoint, Gabe kind of came out on top. Yeah, and I'm not one to speculate on here, but wasn't this getting close to the time that the famous uh, Orlando Triple H coffee cup photo was taken? So I think that photo, I think, is from January 2016, but, okay. but there was plenty of communication before that photo took place. It's not like Triple H logged onto Twitter and said, hmm, there's Andy wrestling in my neck of the woods tonight. Let me log on to that. Uh, I don't have any doubts. And again, I don't know anything. I don't have any doubts that that location was helped secured by World Wrestling Entertainment in some way, shape, or form. Exactly, exactly. And then we went to our first of two main events. This one was Chris Hero versus Masato Tanaka. Masato Tanaka won with the sliding D in 17 minutes and 35 seconds. And this had a WrestleMania weekend big fight feel. It's fucking rocked. I mean, this speaks to what an amazing career that Masato Tanaka has had for, you know, at this point, 25, close to 30 years as being a guy that would take chair shot after chair shot after chair shot to the head and still, you know, somehow got up. And I think the best work of his career was around this time period, this 2014-2015 Masato Tanaka, where, you know, he worked this match. Obviously, he's got a match with Kevin Steen on the WrestleMania weekend, uh, WrestleCon Super Show. And then he's working in Noah at this time point, and it's him and Takashi Segura as the Dangan Yankees as which were one of the best tag teams in the world. I mean, they were unbelievable. They wrestled the mighty don't kneel constantly and all of those matches were really good. And I'm someone that, you know, when it comes to greatest wrestler ever stuff, like we've been talking about on this show and other shows, Masato Tanaka is in my top 50. I really think he's one of the best guys to ever do it. And this is the best run of his career. And again, knowing what we know now, I talked a little bit earlier about some of the flash quick finishes on this show and this is a sign, if anything, that the high flying that was prevalent on that first show, you know, you look at the indie guys in that fray match and all of the flips that they went in the ring and did, that's a sign that high flying is out and that hard hitting is in. Yeah, this is just two guys being dudes just for 18 minutes knocking the crap out of each other. And they really had like a cool conflict between the size differences and experience and skills. And they they played like a they they played off that there might have been like a flash KO in the corner, which I thought was building off of how matches kind of ended abruptly on the show. I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty spectacular, to be honest. I I, I bought into that a lot. And then it's just two guys just doing the things. They just they they had an awesome bomb tease, and then there's this idea of 
I'm trying to read off my notes here. My handwriting's not too great here, but there's idea about like the legends match, like legends coming up on Mania weekend, and they come by and everyone's like happy to see them, but it comes off a little hollow. Like you could tell that they're there for the payday. Masato Tanaka is not there for the payday. Masato Tanaka is there to throw bombs, and you know this was a match that I absolutely loved. It holds up. I would want to note that there was massive production issues for both this and the main event that you could hear a buzzing <laughs> in like the first five minutes of both of these <laughs> matches. But that didn't take this away from me giving this match four and a half stars. This match rocked. A few things to note here. Uh, your point about the legends is actually a great point. It's something that I hadn't thought of. But if you look at even one year into the future, the hyped main event for the Super Show in Northern California, Gabe booked Ricochet and Uha against Roderick Strong and Austin Aries, which was a match at the time I was incredibly excited for. And for you know, for as obnoxious as Austin Aries is on a number of levels, I'm not breaking any news. I I don't I don't know if anybody likes him on a personal level, but Austin Aries is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Unfortunately, when it comes to greatest wrestler ever stuff, he's right by Masato Tanaka on my list. They're both top fifty guys in my opinion. Aries actively drags down that tag match. Aries works it oh, of like it is, you know, the easiest payday ever for him. Whereas, you know, this Chris Hero versus Masato Tanaka match, I think the best thing you can say about it is if you book Chris Hero versus Masato Tanaka, this is the match you would envision. I'm at four and a half stars as well. I think it is a, a chef's kiss of a match if there ever was because it's exactly what you'd want from it. I'll let you know that Rich Christ was also four and a half stars on this match. Because the number one result you had was the Voices of Wrestling review of this by Rich Grace. You're goddamn right. VoicesofWrestling.com. <laughs> there we go. And then we had audio screw up. I guess that they started playing uh, White Ghetto before, I guess, the the selling of it by Lenny Leonard was done. But then we had our main event. It was where they opened the Freedom Gate title. It was Johnny Gargano versus Ricochet. Ricochet won with the Benadriller in 31 minutes and 37 seconds to become the fourth Open the Freedom Gate champion and the last Open the Freedom Gate champion while Dragon Gate USA is alive. So before we talk about the match, we have to talk about Johnny Gargano. He has opened the Freedom Gate title run, which began at Freedom Fight 2011 on November 13th, 2011, on a show that featured Brody Lee, BJ Whitmer, UHA Nation before he had ever gone to Japan, Masato Yoshino, Shima, Ricochet, Pac, Sabu, Pinky Sanchez, to name a few. We've now seen Johnny Gargano's run, not in its entirety because we didn't watch any of the Evolve stuff, but oh my god, it is like he wins and loses this title in two different promotions. Oh, absolutely. And it's something where for a lot of the the run, now that we've watched it in, in its entirety, not a tremendous run in my opinion. Like his babyface stuff was there. And then when he turned heel, a lot of it was really, really good. But nothing that what like there were like two or three epics he had that were like defining. But when you have only two or three epics with a title run this long, comes off like it was just like not enough there for me in my opinion i think this is well i you know we can do this now i like i said around the shows we did covering the miami weekend with alan forel i think we were all a little shocked at just how underwhelmed we were 
with babyface Johnny Gargano because my memory going into this series was that he won the title from Yamato after doing really solid work all of 2011. And then from there, you know, he's a guy and he's good and he's constantly putting on these great matches. And what we saw was outside of being in the ring with Akira Tozawa, Gargano kind of struggled in these main events and he really had to grow into this position. And it's not until the Shingo match or, you know, to some extent, the John Davis no ropes match. And I'm, I'm not trolling Mike by saying that. I, I think <laughs> I think we saw something from Gargano in that match that had been absent for a lot of that title run up to that point, which at that point, it's a, it's a year into the run. But it's not until the Shingo match where he turns heel, where something is really unlocked. And I do think the last year of this title run, despite a lackluster Trent match, is really, really impressive because you go through that 2013, I'll give him the Shingo match and the six-man from the night after. We have the Samurai Del Sol match in Evolve, which which we did not watch for this project. Mike, have you seen that Del Sol match? I have not, no. It's, it's excellent. So you have that, the Tozawa stuff from the fourth anniversary show that I, came ac- that I thought came across super well. There's a Rich Swan match in Evolve that I don't remember, but... It's Gargano and Swan. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it was all right. And then it's, you know, the Chris Hero match, which we both thought was great. An UHA Nation match and Evolve that I really like. Uh, the Trent match, which was disappointing. Then that Roderick Strong match, which I also thought was great. So the year ends on an excellent note. The final year of his title run is excellent. And I think it's capped off by this, which finish in my top 10. In match of the year voting 2014, the first year I had a Voices of Wrestling match of the year ballot. And I think it's one of the best matches in Dragon Gate USA history. I liked it a great deal, but I wouldn't go that far, personally. I went four and a quarter stars on it. I thought that this was a slight downgrade from the match before it. Uh, I think Lenny on commentary, for as much as we've extolled his greatness here, this is his best work, was explaining the year that Ricochet chased uh, Johnny Gargano. I felt like that he was exceptional there, and I like the idea that eventually it was Ricochet came out strong and then was almost putting him away with a Benadriller, which, by the way, the Benadriller was a terrible-looking move, by the way, guys. That move looked like terrible. I hate Mike, the Benadriller. Mike, I'm going to fucking cut you off right now. I'm not mad at you. I love you. This was the best Benadriller ricochet ever hit. I don't know what you're talking about. It looks like he takes Gargano's head off in this move. Well, I'm talking about the, the one early on that he tries to go for. Didn't look but great. I, still, <laughs> I just think it's... T- you, you, you you toss a guy up on your sh- your shoulders and you go like, all right, I'm going to like do a kick here. And then you toss them straight back on their feet. Like, is it supposed to be some sort of equilibrium change that lets them be stunned for long enough for Ricochet to kick him? It just it, it it's one it's one of the rare moves, and I'm a moves guy. We know we that. love the moves. He, he, we love the moves. I love the spots. I think every match should be 12 minutes long and just be move after move after move after move. But it, it's something where I'm just like this, and I think that the uh, two point looks so much better where he does kind of a uh, where he does kind of like the Paley kick out of it. I thought that that always looked awesome with this, but it the story they told like that he almost had him there, but then. Gargano was able to hang on and then kind of find inventive ways to get on the Gargano escape until he realized I can't get this guy and then he started to cheat and but but 
all of his cheating did not work. And then Ricochet hit the 630 for a huge kickout. The crowd actually went nuts for that kickout because, like, we thought that was it. They bought completely in- into it. And then eventually he hit the Benadriller for the win there. It just, it, it's great storytelling. It, I just think I'm not a giant Gargano guy. And I think that that's probably why I marked this match lower than you do. I think that's fair because in 2014 in particular, I am all in on Gargano. Uh, at one point, I know I had two different Johnny Gargano shirts in my closet that I wore constantly my freshman year of high school. One being a ripoff of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers t-shirt. And I like remember the people going like, oh, cool Power mm-hmm. Rangers shirt. Oh, never mind. Don't know what that is. Very vivid memories of that. Uh, I was worried that this match would not hold up the way I thought it did. Because I remember loving it at the time, giving it four and three quarter stars and wondering if it was going to be as good this time around. I have come to the conclusion, after watching 40, 48 Drangit USA shows before this, seeing Gargano in almost every single one of them, following Gargano's entire run in this promotion, for all of the Teddy Hart nonsense, for all of the poor production, for just the disaster that this promotion ended up being, whatever happens next week, I don't care. This match was so perfectly executed that to me it makes the history, the lineage of Drangate USA, and the purposes of this project entirely worth it. I thought this had the emotional stake, the execution, and the drama behind it that your classic Ring of Honor world title matches had. I thought it was just sublime. I I really bought into the story. I bought into the slow build. Dave says in The Observer for this show, he says it's a 45-minute match. It's not. It's 31 minutes, which is a huge difference. But for 31 minutes, was thoroughly entertained by this. I, you know, I, I obviously knew the finish, and I'm buying into some of these Gargano near falls because you're right. The story of this match was how many times is this guy going to put on the Gargano escape and have Ricochet get out of it? And it was great. It made Ricochet look like a million bucks. I thought Gargano looked great in defeat. And in the end... After the 6.30, after the Gargano escape, after all of this stuff, Ricochet hits what I think is the best Benadriller he ever hit. He cleans Gargano's clock. Four and three quarter stars from me. I was so incredibly satisfied and had this warm feeling in my stomach by the time this was over. This made everything worth it. Yeah, this was, regardless of the extenuating circumstances... This was a moment, a capital M moment. This was, I, I mean, it's like that this is the funeral and the next show is the wake, you know, like, like the after party. Or maybe maybe a lot of funerals I've been, everyone got together and drank afterwards. Maybe that's just me, though. But that that was, it, it felt like this was the end of Dragon Gate USA. And one, the one thing I wanted to note that we didn't talk about was probably one of the more inventive uh belt shots that Gargano does in this so he does like how many attempts does uh, Ricochet make for the Benadryl before he lands I think it's like close to three Something where he like attempts that, it yeah. but like the last one he is Gargano already has the Freedom Gate title he holds it up to his face and Ricochet kicks it and Ricochet sells it and I thought that, that was actually a pretty inventive way of getting out of it even the ref bump in this match was really well done I, you know this is like this type of match is exactly what's missing from the independent scene today. And it's something that we won't see because this is the type of stuff, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be a two and a half year title run, but it does need to have some sort of build behind it because this match, you know, 
it, I mean, let's t- let's use this for example. If this match happens at Evolve 10, where Gargano and Ricochet wrestled each other, if this is the match they do, it's probably fine. I'm probably giving it four stars, but it's not what I would consider to be this near-perfect classic. This This had story... And I was invested in it. I had this emotional attachment to this match that for all of the faults of this promotion, the one steady line from 20, uh, 2009 to 2014 is the story of Johnny Gargano. And while he has disappointed me at times, I don't think he came across great in 2010. Don't think he came across great in 2012 when he had the belt. I think it's you know the heel run in 2011 and the heel run in 2013 that really catapulted him as a star in my eyes. This was it. I mean, this this was the story where the right guy won the right match or the right place at the right time. It was incredibly well done. And Ricochet comes out of this match being the king of the dragon system. Yeah, so in the post-match, the entire face locker room comes out to congratulate him. They lift him up on his shoulders. Rich Swan is pointing to him very happily. I mean, he finally gets to see the big turncoat get it. Get it. And then everyone kind of clears out, and Chuck Taylor walks into the ring. And after a long moment of the two of them staring each other down, they embrace in a hug and like a genuinely great moment. And then Ricochet picks up the microphone. And I think the reason why we're able to hear this is I think that the announcers turned up their headsets so that people could hear it. And Ricochet says that uh, that he, it's, he wasn't on the first DGUSA show, but he was on the first Evolve show. And, and his path that he took since then completely changes up his life. And then he brings up the Ric Flair quote, if you want to beat the man, if you want to be the man, it's beat the man. And then he talks about now being the double champion, and that makes him the top guy in the business, the crowd chain's best in the world. And then he says he's not going to dodge any other, any challenges, and that they just have to step up and face him in the ring because he will be a defending champion. And then he does the classic, did you have a good, did, did you all have a good time? Did you all have a good time? Go home. And as we could hear this, the reason why I knew that it was the commentators, we could hear the last noise I heard was a commentator cough. And that was it. For, for, and that was it for Open the Ultimate Gate 2014. In a way, it's a shame that this isn't the final show. Because, to, you know, to use the ECW comparison, for example, maybe you don't compare it to the two house shows that they had at the end of 2001. But even their final pay-per-view, it ends with a really weak by their standards Jerry Lynn versus RVD match and you have like the three-way stuff with Carino, Just Incredible and Sandman that ends with Rhino winning the belt somehow. I forget what exactly happens there, but you know, Rhino ends up the double champion and then, you know, that Lynn versus RVD match just feels like a lesser version of what they were doing in 1999 and 2000. They go out on top here. Ricochet and Gargano have, again, what I think is a classic, one of the best matches I think Ricochet's ever had, and certainly one of the best matches that I think Gargano's ever had. And in in a way, I'm choosing to end Drangit USA canon here. And the next night is just whatever. Whatever happens, I don't care. I am beyond fascinated to rewatch this show next week. But selfishly, just for the story, knowing that this is the end... It would have been really nice had the final show closed out like this. And I think even if the final if the final show closed out like this, you want to talk about changing the narrative of Dragon Gate USA, you can take the final six shows, have them the way they are, but this is the final match on Dragon Gate USA show, people remember it much fondlier 
than they currently do. Much more fondly. Fondly is not a word. Much more fondly than they currently do. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right about it because then like you have this really well told, which at the time when we first started watching this, I was like, this seems like kind of a long storyline until I was like, oh, wait, okay. This is what happens in New Orleans. It makes sense why they're stringing this out here. And it's very satisfying. And in a way, it kind of encapsulates the DGOSA experience that Ricochet, picked by Shima before even going to a WWN event, becomes the first Gaijin Open the Dreamgate champion and ends up being the only double champion in DGUSA history. And it just works. And But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where Mercury Rising 2014 happened. From the same venue, the next night, April 5th, 2014, the final Dragon Gate USA show. The six-man tag team tournament, Chris Hero, Masato Tanaka, and Roderick Strong will wrestle A.R. Fox, Rich Swan, and Ricochet. We'll have a singles match, Mike, between Chuck Taylor and Maxwell Chicago. Then back to the six-man tournament with Biff Busick, Chuck Taylor, and Teddy Hart against the premier athlete brand and then Lince Dorado, Fire Ant, and Green Ant versus the Bravado Brothers and Moose before we get Ivalice versus Mercedes Martinez in a shine title match, Loki versus Johnny Gargano in a singles match, and then the finals of the six-man tag team tournament, and then we end Dragon USA, we turn out the lights with a dark tag team match with the Bravado Brothers and Bad Influence. I'm not going to reveal who are in the finals, but that is really kind of pissing on the grave doing the Dragon Gate true trademark match as your final match of your promotion's existence. Uh, it is. It is something. Uh, we'll talk again next week. We'll talk about Evolve. <laughs> we'll talk about Wrestling Odyssey. We'll talk about Ring of Honor. Probably some other fun stuff. If there's any topics, uh, Mike, that we've missed along the way next week, that's probably the time to cover them. But... Look, I remember watching this show live, and I remember uh, feeling shocked is the word that comes to mind. Shocked at what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, this is this is it. We've done the countdown for a while, but next will be the final show of Dragon Gate USA's history on episode 50. That kind of really worked out for us, didn't it? Oh, it was beautiful. It's the, it's the reason we didn't, I didn't make you watch one of the Evolve shows was because once you told me, it was like, oh, it's going to be 50 episodes. Great. <laughs> fuck the Evolve show. I like the fact that it's 50 episodes. Now, Case, did you do that because of the Evolve show, or did you do that because you knew the Evolve show I was going to suggest was Evolve Tribute to the Arena? Mike, I would have quit the podcast had you made me watch Evolve 10. I just wouldn't have watched it. I was going to make you watch Evolve 25 with Davey Richards on it, and we would have had a grand old time. We would have. We would have. But that's going to do it for this week. So for next week, where we finally close the gate on Dragon Gate USA... You can follow the podcast on Twitter at OpenTheVoiceGate. You can follow me at Fujiheya, and you can follow Case at underscore in your case. But for Case, I'm Mike, and thanks for listening to The Voice Gate. We'll be back next time to conclude, rewind, and rewatch Dragon Gate USA. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live 
live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 